I think that it's really hard to describe what we call biological privilege. So when people have easy, instant access to their biology, you can just look at your parents and see where you came from because they look like you. You have mirrors right there. You could easily and probably do hear stories about your birth because your parents are right there, or you don't have any details that are like fuzzy. You don't wonder if things are true or untrue. That's called biological privilege. And for adoptees not having that, it can feel like our life is kind of built on shifting sand. So perhaps we do have really supportive and loving adoptive parents, but our our foundation, if we don't have all that information, is feels unsteady. A lot of adoptees use this phrase, coming out of the fog, which mm-hmm. essentially means starting to understand their own story within the big structure and system of adoption, which is an industry like any other. It operates on supply and demand, unfortunately. And so to start to put yourself in there, it's it's scary. I feel like this is partly why I created the Adoptee Mentoring Society, but we need other adoptees to be supportive to that journey of understanding. When we talk with non-adopted people, I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is to try to just make it all okay. And that's where the things like you should be grateful and statements like that come out. So if we're saying things, for example, for me, of learning that my adoption was really based out of poverty that I falsely conflated that my birth parents, my birth mother must not want me because she placed me for adoption. But in reality, she didn't have resources and support and was poor and homeless. And that's actually a a societal issue. It doesn't have to do with her desire to parent me or not. And so when I start talking like that, people usually are really really quick to say like, oh, but aren't you so glad? Like, look at all the opportunities you got. You wouldn't have had that otherwise. And we're not exactly trying to just compare, but we're trying to put ourselves like situationally in context. And I think adoptees do that well with each other because we know that it can't be fixed. And that's not exactly what we're seeking. What do we know about the mental health and emotional health of adoptees? You know, how is this added to when this sort of forced gratitude is thrusted upon them? It's not great. Um, The American Academy of Pediatrics in 2013 came out with one of the a big study and a huge sample or Korean adoptees, but they found that one in four adoptees who seek therapy attempt suicide. And in November, there's a National Adoptee Remembrance Day, and that's because of this awful truth. And it's really easy to think that all of those um, terrible happenings are because adoptees maybe were abused or neglected or but in honesty it's not that it's adoptees who have loving homes who just don't feel like they can talk about this complicated identity and lack of belonging that feeling so yeah it's um adoptees are really overrepresented in seeking therapy and 
that's one big reason why I tried to create, I'm creating this nonprofit. Um, as you know, as we're having this conversation, and and of course, this is an ongoing process that you're processing, and a lot of people are processing. Are you finding people more willing to talk about it? Is that helpful with the experience? I really am. Yeah, I. And, and let's see, in the '60s and the '50s, it was the baby scoop era, and this is where we would send women away to give birth and then they would be reintegrated into society and never act like it never happened. And thankfully we are so far from that, that there are a lot of agencies that are doing a good job um, of ensuring that either there is an open adoption or that everybody understands the importance of staying connected so that education is happening. Unfortunately, though, it's still really individualistic in that the adoptive parents have all the control in deciding whether or not they actually want to follow through with that. And a lot of the reasoning isn't really nefarious, but it's like a fear that I think adoptive parents have because so often adoption is happening across class lines and perhaps race. But when it's across class there's a discomfort that might be here and will there is a tendency to to misunderstand certain things like if a biological parent is incarcerated if you don't have any experience with prison or you've never been in a relationship with someone who's incarcerated you might be really tempted to just think everyone is is bad and scary and dangerous and so therefore you can't have a relationship with them, which is is not true, but you really need somebody to help you talk through it and talk through your perceived fears versus actual fears. And that part is what doesn't often happen and therefore leads to this feeling of where can I talk about adoption? Is anywhere safe? I talk in my book about this term called the ghost kingdom, which I didn't coin. Um, Betty Jean Lifton coined it, but it's about how we kind of fantasize anytime there's an absence of facts or truth. And so for me growing up, I, in my ghost kingdom, my birth mother was Halle Berry and my birth father was Magic Johnson because Magic Johnson has a huge smile. He's a black guy. I have a huge smile. I'm black and he plays basketball and I played basketball. And so he was my birth dad, even though he was not. And in, in Halle Berry, there's really no good reason just because, right? Right. <laughs> and, um, and so it's, it's like funny and, and lighthearted, necessary for our curiosity to be able to live in a ghost kingdom. But then it made it tough when I did meet my birth mother and <clears throat> my birth mother is, is so much, I'm, I'm so much happier that she's not Halle Berry, but at the same time, it was, it took a long time for me to really understand who she was. And on the inverse, my birth mother, oftentimes when we're together, she is looking, if there's an infant, a black little baby girl that passes you know, and we're out and about, she'll stare at that baby so hard. And I know that she's thinking like, is that my baby girl? 
because she too is stuck in that moment of trauma. And it's really hard for her to understand that I grew up, I'm an adult. And so that makes our relationship really tricky. One thing that I'm often speaking about in, in my speeches and keynotes and in my book too is white parents needing to outsource some of the parenting duties if they have a black or brown child, because there are certainly things that they just cannot provide to their child, no matter how much they want to, that it can only be provided by somebody who looks like them. And that comment and, you know, my hope, it's being received, I think, a little bit better than it had in the past when we had this love is all we need sort of mentality. I think that's dissipating, thankfully. And then it's allowing adoptees to not feel like racial imposters or like Kim said, like they don't even understand anything about their own people. That's um, thankfully going a little bit by the wayside. So can you talk about uh, the support group that you provide for adoptees, the adoptee lounge? Now, it's such an obvious question, but, you know, why is it important to have this lounge available? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I I love it. It's the adoptee lounges are virtual. So I'm chatting actually with adoptees across the world. Um, and I do it in groups. So other adoptees can sometimes for the first time be in another space with an adopted person. And to have somebody that just gets it, that just understands intrinsically what it's like to be the only person of color in a room or to be the only person who can't um, manufacture a baby picture. Um, Those experiences, which previously for so many adoptees had been something they maybe have glossed over because there is such a pressure to just be happy for what you're given and not think backwards. There is so much relief in the room these Zoom rooms um, from other adoptees were just like, oh my goodness, I didn't know there was anybody else who knew this. So yeah, it's it's both really obvious and at the same time, hard to find these places. And distinctly for same race adoptees, um, you know, I think for the folks who are listening, obviously our NPR listeners, so they might know Steven Skeep's voice from NPR National. He is an adoptee. He was he um, was with me on my book tour in DC, and he talked about being white and having white adoptive parents, and how there was even less space for him than people who were transracially adopted to bring up adoption, and how that was uniquely isolating for him, which also is really kind of a topic that we don't often recognize. This is all stuff that I talk about with adult adoptees. Like, let's just break down your birth mother was 15 years old. You know, like, let's talk about what may have happened. Then that leads us into thinking about her life and what supports she may may or may not have had and what happened. I think there's um, just an unraveling that has to happen where we think through our birth parents' lives instead of just like, a Hallmark card. You were chosen. You're special. Because I. it's not unusual for like Ryan, for our peers to say what they have seen in society. And media messaging is that. It's that birth parents are bad. 
Adoption means you're not wanted. So when our parents stop at just, you were chosen, I love you so much, I'm so glad in your fa- that you're in our family, it, it makes it really hard for us to make sense of how both things can be true at the same time. And I feel like that's pretty much what we're always talking about in the lounges, how our adoptive parents may have had really good intentions and we can understand why they may have wanted to shield us from certain information, but in shielding us, it just further served to like isolate because life maybe didn't completely make sense. And you mentioned media portrayals just now, and we talked about that earlier too, in terms of social media, film, and television in one of our intros, and and how they portray stories of transracial adoption has impacted the way many people view it. So, what do you? How do you think about the way media portrays these stories? Well, social media is actually a different animal in the sense yes, that absolutely. when you look at. Um, hashtag adoptee voices, you're hearing from youth, from teenagers, from young adults, from college-aged adoptees who are really honest about their experiences. So that's kind of cool, the great equalizer. Um, But media, yeah, that we all know, like the blind side, and we think about Michael Orr and his depiction of adoption, which if you watch the film, you realize that Michael Orr himself, his character only has a few lines and a few opportunities to talk about how it feels to have been plucked from homelessness and then rescued, which is what the portrayal by these noble Christian white folks who turn him into this all-American star. Like that, that rags to riches storyline is really common And we don't often hear like from the adoptee, how does that make you feel to be portrayed this way? And is it actually accurate? Do you feel like you're rich? And (laughs) um, I had the great opportunity to help uh, season five of the show, This Is Us, worked with the writers uh, to make sure that one of the characters, Randall, who is a transracial adoptee, to make sure that they were portraying him accurately that made me really excited, gave me so much hope to know that writers are actually trying to consult with us, no longer just using adoption as like this catalyst for drama. You know, it's so easy. Think about Elf or sure. The Lion King or right. all these movies where it's just so easy to remove a parent and then there is your fantastical journey instead of thinking about like, how does this actually feel? 